Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Now, if you're feeling bad about sexual disasters in your past, and it has caused you to repent, and it has led you to deepen your faith, and you got them still hanging around inside your mind, you're blowing it, because they don't belong there. And you need to tell them they're not welcome there. And you need to say, you know what? There's no reason for you to be here anymore. the difference between feeling bad and repentance? Godly sorrow is much more than saying sorry. It leads to complete life transformation. And today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is addressing this topic from the perspective of someone who has repented but is still dealing with feelings of guilt and shame. He begins today's lesson with an illustration from his own life, an experience that caused him to quit softball. Well, let's get started with the message titled, Dealing with Guilt, Regret, and Other Bad Feelings. I used to play on the uh, church softball team. I guess they let me play because I was the pastor, I don't know. But it seemed like every year that I played, the teams kept getting better and I kept getting worse. And so I was, I was playing third base one day and uh, this full swing bunt and this dribbling ball coming toward third. And, and I rushed this ball and I scooped it up and I tried to turn a double play. So I had a hard throw to make. And as I was making it, my cleat stuck in the dirt and folded over my foot. And I broke my foot in a variety of places. It was so bad. As a matter of fact, when they put the x-ray up on the screen, I thought it was a joke that he'd taken it out of the joke file. Because, you know, it looked like a cartoon. My, my bones were completely going all the wrong directions. And you know what happened that inning? I stopped playing. <laughs> um, I, I didn't finish the game. I couldn't do it. I could hardly walk on it because I was in pain. It was something bad in my foot, and I had bad feelings about it, and so I stopped playing softball that day. But there was something else that happened as a result of that. <laughs> I never played softball again because I realized this seems to happen like all the time. Something goes wrong. I go home with, you know, ice packs on my shoulder. and It, just, I, it wasn't worth it anymore. Now I'm breaking my brittle bones. And I got to stop this. It's not good for my body. So I said, no more softball. I'm done. Forget it. And there was a kind of repentance that took me out of the whole field, the whole game. Forget it. And if you look at this verse again, this is the kind of repentance he's talking about. A repentance that changes their life orientation. It changes their direction. And though they were involved in this, they're not involved in it anymore. And that's why if you're here today and you're in the middle of some sexual sin, sex out of context, and you say, I can identify with that bad feeling because I have it after every incident of sex out of context. The kind of bad feeling you have that may take you home is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the bad feeling that leads to a change in your lifestyle that this thing in your life is no longer current, it becomes past. The affair is over. The fornication and premarital sex is done. It's gone, I'm finished with it. And the lifestyle changes. That's repentance. And that's the kind of repentance that that bad, yucky feeling is trying to produce in us, a turning around that Sticks, And that's what all these words are try trying to communicate. An earnestness, an eagerness to clear ourselves, an indignation toward the sin, an alarm, a longing, a concern, so that everyone could look back and say, they are innocent. 
They're not doing that anymore. And you can look at me now and be thoroughly convinced I'm not a softball player anymore. I don't even try. There's been a full repentance there. Not just I'm out of the game. I'm out of the game. See, there's a difference there. And the real issue of guilt, regret, remorse, shame, sorrow is, did it do that? Did it produce that? And I put it this way in your outline to give it more of an active sense and an urgency. Could you write it down this way in your outlines? Number two, make sure guilt does its job. Because we've just read what the job is. Make sure it does it. Make sure it does it completely. God produced bad feelings in your heart about that thing, that incident, that sin, because he wants you to stop it. Have you stopped? Has there been repentance? Have you turned around from your sin? Is it history? If it is, guilt has done its primary job because that's why God designed your spirit to hurt when you do wrong. And that should be our passion. Get the bad feelings and channel it into repentance. Now, there is a collateral benefit that's thrown in. And this is something that happens, I think, every time someone genuinely feels sorrowful and they have a biblical response to that sorrow. Not only do they repent, there is another aspect. Oh, it's not the primary purpose of guilt, but it is a benefit that you're sure to glean from guilt if you understand Scripture and if you know what God is trying to do in us. And I'd like to show it to you from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Start moving toward the end of the Bible and you'll find the little book of 1 Timothy. And as you find that book, I want you to recognize that this is a collateral benefit that every one of us should try to glean when we're feeling cruddy about something we've done wrong. Not only do I want to make sure that it's changed my behavior, but there's something else that takes place that's beautifully illustrated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you drop your eyes down around verse 12, you'll see that he's very thankful for the role that he's playing in the church. He's a great leader. He's a great preacher. He's a missionary. He's an apostle. He's being used by God to write a lot of the New Testament. And he's thankful for that. I'm thankful. But then he says in verse 13, even though I was once, look at the words he uses, a blasphemer. That's an ancient archaic word to us, but that's kind of the biggest religious sin you could commit. A persecutor, what does that mean? He stood by as he gave his authoritative approval to the stoning and murder of some of the hottest stars, the most godly men of the early church. He was a violent man, and who knows what that represents other than perhaps he really enjoyed seeing the bloodshed there as he sent out soldiers to kill members of the early church. All of these things were true, but it says in verse 13, he found mercy. God was showing him mercy as he acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out abundantly along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he sums all this up with this, and this is a critical phrase. Note it carefully, verse 15. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And don't miss it. Christ Jesus, note it carefully, came into the world to save good people. Underline the two words, good people. Would you do that? Do you see that there? No, it's not there. Christ Jesus came into the world to save, what's the word? Sinners. He says, of whom I was the worst. Now, that may sound melodramatic, but he's pretty convinced. I'm a murderer. I blaspheme God. I oppose the only way that God has ever provided to, to save people. I've killed some of the young preachers and leaders in the church. I, I'm a violent man. Uh, I'm terrible. But you know what? Uh, that's why Christ came. He came to, to save sinners. 
to love them, and, and I'm like the worst. But you know, it was for that very reason, this is very, very important, look at it, verse 16. For that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display, underline this word, his unlimited patience. How patient is God? How merciful, how gracious? Unlimited, as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. What's he saying? He's saying a bunch of us are going to feel guilty about sin in our lives. We're going to look at our resume and say it's not a very good one. And Paul says that God chose him with a terrible resume to be one of the greatest, most influential leaders of the early church to show us that God saves sinners, not righteous people. That God loves and extends his grace on people that are bad, not on people that think they're good. Because if you think you're good or think you can ever be good enough to earn God's favor, you don't understand the New Testament. You don't understand the Bible. As a matter of fact, you insult his holiness and his intelligence if you think you can ever do enough good things so that he'll look at you and say, boy, you're lovely and lovable. I want to love you. He will never be impressed with you. As a matter of fact, he looks at the whole world and he says, all of you guys are sinners. There's not one righteous out there, not even one. And so he says, you need to understand that I love you and I forgive you and I'm gracious toward you, not because you earn it, not because you're good, but just because I'm gracious. That's why Jesus hung on a cross. You remember this picture, don't you? And he looked at a criminal, a murderer, and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. While all the Sadducees and Pharisees looked on, scratching their head, wondering what that was all about, trying to be good in their own righteousness, and he looks at someone who no one would think in the entire crowd was a righteous person. He said, you'll be with me in, in paradise today. Trying to show them that God comes and extends his love and mercy on people that he chooses to do so, and he does it not because they're good or not because the object is lovely. He loves them just because he loves them. Now, the collateral benefit of bad feelings in my life is that bad feelings convince me real fast that I'm bad. <laughs> well, how's that a benefit? Because at the core of Christian theology is that God loves bad people. Did you know that? Romans chapter 4 puts it as clear as any passage in the Bible can put it, that Christ Jesus is the mechanism by which God can look at sinful people and make them right. He puts it this way. God justifies the wicked. That's a critically important phrase. God justifies. What does that mean? He makes them clean and right in his sight. What kind of people? Wicked people. Did you, did you know that? He looks at wicked people and he says, I'm going to make you righteous. How does he do that? 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Now slow down the tape and listen carefully to that. He made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin, he was perfect, to be sin on our behalf. What does that mean? That we were the, really the sinful people that God was mad at, but God said, I'll punish him, the righteous one, instead of you, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Are you tracking with that? We can be declared clean, and God can say, I accept you and love you, not based on anything that we've done, but just because he looks through Christ and the payment that was made on our behalf and says, you're clean. I love you and you're guiltless because I punished Christ instead of you. The payment's been made and the gavel comes down from heaven and says, not guilty. Now, the collateral benefit of the bad feelings in my life is that they convince me I'm bad. And when I look in the mirror and I say, Mike, you've done a bad thing. You, f you feel bad about that. You know what my answer should be to that? You're darn right. You are bad. You've done bad and you are bad. But if that guilt ever tries to tempt me to take the next step, which is in the minds of many of you out there, God doesn't love bad people, then you've just violated the whole tenor of Scripture because the whole corpus of what the New Testament is trying to tell us is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. 
Do you see that? That collateral benefit is that I recognize that I qualify, that I am bad, that God loves bad people. He takes the guilt of my sin. He nails it to the cross. And I know that it's not about me. It's about him. And that's why the last phrase in verse 17 fits so well. He turns the attention to the gracious, merciful giver. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The problem is with people trying to earn their righteousness in all kinds of churches and religious systems today is that the honor and glory ends up going to them because they are the ones that are being good, good enough for God to love. Real Christianity says don't even try. You can't. You can't be good enough. Make sure that guilt does its job. And if we want to summarize that, it's not only sincere repentance that lasts, it's a deepening faith in the core of the gospel. And that is that I am not challenged to believe that I'm good. I'm challenged to believe that I'm loved. Do you see the difference? My challenge is not to believe in the midst of my bad feelings about how bad I am. Oh, no, no, no. Deny that and believe that you're good. Somehow you got to believe that you're good. No, I don't have to believe that I'm good. I just have to believe that I'm loved. Well, how can I do that? Because God has promised that he loves sinners. God would never hire a guy with a bad resume. He does it every time he adopts a child into his family. He says, you all have bad resumes. My challenge is to believe that God is true. That's a deepening of my faith. So the question for you is, as you look back at sexual failure or any other kind of failure in your life, is you say, I felt really bad about that. The question is, did those bad feelings lead to sincere repentance and deepening faith? That I believe that God loves me because of Christ, not because of me. If your bad feelings have done that, guess what? They've done their job. They've been successful. They're finished. All done. That's what they were designed for. No less and no more. Because if my cruddy feelings have led me to repent and deepen my faith, they're finished. My wife and I are in the process of selling our house. And it's funny what we do when we sell our house, and you know this, we start fixing everything in our house for some reason. All the stuff that should have been fixed years ago, now we're getting around to it because we're selling it. It makes you wonder why you're moving because now when you're done, it's all fixed. But, you know, I'm so inordinately busy, I've been having people come in and do this stuff. So we've hired some guys, some workmen, and they've come in and cocked the tub and, uh, you know, patched the walls and painted and stuff. And so they're working on all this stuff. So the workmen come in. It's a bit of an inconvenience. So we got two little kids and they got to have nap time and all that. But, you know, they're doing a job. And so we're inconvenienced by them for a while, but they do what they're called to do. Now, can you imagine if I came home after work and walked into the family room and there were a bunch of construction guys sitting there in my couch? It's 6 o'clock. They got their feet up. They're drinking my Pepsi, right? They're saying, what's for dinner? You know, can you pass me the remote control? I mean, I'd have a bit of a problem with this. I mean, I'm a hospitable guy and all, but I would ask, like, are you done? And if they said, yeah... You know, do you have a TV guide? I'm going to say, get out, right? I mean, I got one response to them. Find your own couch and your own TV, because if you're done, you're done. You did it. You're finished. I don't accommodate you. Now, if I can't, if I can't convince them to leave, I'm going to have to do a couple of things. One, I'm going to have to call the police, right? 
I got him kicked out. Hey, I got a big 240-pound uh, construction worker here who won't leave. And you know what else I'm going to do? I'm not going to hand him the remote control. <laughs> and I'm not going to set a place for them for dinner. I'm not going to do it. Because you don't belong here anymore. Oh, at two in the afternoon, when you were, when you were caulking the tub, you belonged here. But now you don't belong here because the tub is caulked. Bye. You see where I'm going here, right? Guilt has one purpose. It is to get us to repent. And the collateral benefit is we deepen our faith in the core of the gospel. Now, if you're feeling bad about sexual disasters in your past, and it has caused you to repent, and it has led you to deepen your faith, and you got them still hanging around inside your mind, you're blowing it. Because they don't belong there. And you need to tell them they're not welcome there. And you need to say, you know what? There's no reason for you to be here anymore. And if you don't get out of here, I'm going to call the cops because you don't belong here. Now you're a hindrance. At two in the afternoon, you were a help. But now at, at six, you're nothing but in the way. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Let me show you that this is what God is trying to get us to understand about guilt, that it has a period of effectiveness. And then that effectiveness is over. And when the effectiveness and productivity of guilt is over, you show guilt the door. You say you're done. And you ask it to leave. And if it doesn't leave, you call the cops. Let me show you how that works. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. And this is really a summation of so many things that have been said about living righteous and obedient lives. And he says, dear children, verse 18, 1 John 3. Let us not love with words or with tongues. Don't just flap your mouth about being godly. You've got to do it. You've got to be godly. You've got to try. You've got to strive. You've got to do it with actions and in truth. And he says, this then. What do you mean this then? This what? This, the living of righteous life. Doing obedient things. Striving to serve and to love in actions and in truth. This then is how we know we belong to the truth. It's evidence. It's fruit. And how we, note this carefully, set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. Did you catch that? There's another reference to this bad feeling. But it's a bad feeling that's already served its usefulness. And the text says, when our heart decides to keep trying to give us guilt after we've repented and put our faith, deepening faith in Christ, then what we need to do is ignore it. We need to move forward. And if ignoring it won't help, I love the next phrase. What does it say? For God is greater than our hearts. Call the cops, man. Get God to help you get these feelings out. And he knows everything. And the most important thing he knows is that all my sin was nailed to a cross one day and that I'm no longer guilty. I am forgiven. And if I'm forgiven and I've repented and I've deepened my faith in the core of the gospel, then guilt has no place in my life. Forget it. It's over with. If you're feeling guilty about a sin you committed 10 years ago, five years ago, or 15 years ago, I'm here to say today, you need to make sure before you leave this auditorium that you have repented of that sin and that you have affirmed the central truth of the gospel, that God loves sinners and he can do it because of Christ. And if that has taken place, then you say, out, done, forget it. And you, as this text infers, you ignore it by focusing on service, on loving, on being an obedient Christian. Because the problem with guilt that's overextended its welcome in your life is that it becomes counterproductive. And think of the irony of this. Something God designed in our spirit to help us be more righteous and obedient now is becoming something that keeps us from being righteous and obedient. Because it does. God calls us to be joyful. And our heart says, you have no right being joyful. Look at what you did. 
Look how bad you've been. We're supposed to be at peace in our hearts, at rest in his presence, and, and our hearts saying, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't be at peace. Look at what a bad thing you've done. We're supposed to be obedient, and we're supposed to serve him, and our heart's going to say, you can't serve him. You have no right to serve him. Who are you? You're not worthy. Look at what you've done. We're supposed to share the gospel and the good news of Christ, and we'll be talking to someone about God, and, and, and our hearts will start to condemn us. You've got no right to say that. You haven't lived that out perfectly. Look at the sin in your past. And the Bible here is emphatic. We just keep moving. We keep going. And we trust that if we have to, the cops will come in. And the God of the universe, who's greater than our heart, is going to help us expel these condemning feelings that no longer serve a purpose. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. He knows not only what we've done, but how it was atoned for on a cross. And we say to all the bad, gunky feelings in our lives, after it's accomplished its purpose, Forget it. I put it this way in your outline. Number three, you and I need to recognize that when guilt has done its job, I put it this way, when it has, if number two was make sure they do their job, make sure guilt does its job, when it has, here's the key phrase, then ignore it. Ignore it. It's not going to condemn me. It's not going, I'm not going to accommodate for it. I'm not going to, to, to coddle it. I'm not, I'm not going to in any way pander to it. I, I'm not even going to pay attention to it. And I'm going to ask God to expel it because it has no further usefulness in my life. Forget it. If it's done its job, out. Now, do you see the seeming contradiction between point one that you wrote and point three? Point one, I said, don't ignore it. Point three, I said, ignore it. Why? Because point two is sitting there. It's got a job to do. If it's done its job, ignore it. If it hasn't, pay a lot of attention to it. And then you know what comes into focus? That little phrase I made you underline. Then hopefully the guilt will only be for a little while because it will only exist between the sin and the repentance. And that's all that it's really there for. And if it extends beyond that, then we know it's becoming counterproductive. And we say to God, forget it. It's done its job. God, I'm not gonna listen to it. I'm not gonna accommodate for it. And I'm not gonna allow it to be used by the enemy to make my life less productive for the kingdom. Hopefully the guilt will only be for a little while. You're listening to Focal Point and a message from Pastor Mike Fabares called Dealing with Guilt, Regret, and Other Bad Feelings. To review the study notes for today's message or to listen again, go to focalpointradio.org. Just look for the series called Sexual Disasters. Well, none of us hope to experience hardship or regret, but when we commit ourselves fully to God, He may shine a light on actions from our past that make us uncomfortable. That's not something a lot of people want to hear, but it's the truth. And here at Focal Point, we're committed to teaching directly from Scripture, never changing or watering down God's Word, because God has given it to us for a reason. We want you to experience complete restoration and freedom in Christ, and that only comes from repenting from your sins and moving past those feelings of guilt and shame. Here's what one listener had to say about the program. Kent wrote to us from Illinois saying, Sound biblical teaching without compromise. Pastor Mike is a great preacher and teacher who is easy to listen to. My wife and myself love Focal Point. We listen daily and pray for you regularly. Praise God for His rich favor regarding Focal Point. May He continue to bless and use you as you stand on His word and exalt our Savior. Amen. Thank you, Kent. This month, we're featuring a helpful book written by Pastor Mike called Lifelines for Tough Times. Now, this book helps you understand why God allows suffering 
as well as provides you with resources to stand strong in the face of trials and rest in God's care. We'll send you a copy of Lifelines for Tough Times as our way of saying thanks for supporting the ministry of Focal Point today. To make a donation, go to focalpointradio.org. You can also call 888-320-5885. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Wednesday when we'll discuss tactics for fighting temptation. That's coming right here on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.